Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Waves for Thursday, November 7th. The Ronan Pharaohs on the Line edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate podcast. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. Before we get into our topics, I want to call out two of our listeners who wrote in about the segment we did on our last episode about mixed politics couples. Um, Both of the listeners were gay and pointed out that we did not talk about gay relationships in our episode. Uh, Mia culpa. Totally should have brought that up. But both of the people who wrote in were in their own mixed politics relationships. Um, One is Paul. He writes that he and Rick, these are pseudonyms, by the way, um, have been together for eight years. They seemed like they were politically aligned when they first got together. Um, But Rick got what he calls red-pilled in 2016 as Trump was campaigning. Paul says that, you know, we sort of drew a line in our segment between people who were always sort of Trump supporters um, and people whose politics changed because of Trump. Um, Paul says that Rick was a case of somebody who truly had a political conversion because Trump hit all the right notes. Um, Paul says they're still together even though they have intense arguments every now and then, but they end up falling back on what Paul calls the only resolution possible. We have to agree to disagree on this because they fit so well together. They fill such vital roles for each other that a huge political disagreement just kind of pales in comparison. Thank you so much, Paul, for writing in. That was a very interesting perspective. And I'm glad to know that we have some mixed politics couples among our listeners. Okay, our topics this week. We are going to start with Katie Hill, the congresswoman from California who had dated one of her campaign staffers, and she resigned last week after a couple right-wing news outlets published a series of naked photos of her. For our second topic, we're going to review Mrs. Fletcher, a new HBO series starring Katherine Hahn as a single and divorced woman whose son goes off to college, giving her room to explore her own sexuality. And finally, we're interviewing Ronan Farrow, who's reporting on Harvey Weinstein's long history of alleged rape and sexual harassment, forms the basis of his new book, Catch and Kill. That's going to be a great conversation. Uh, And Marsha, what is our Slate Plus segment this week? Our Slate Plus segment this week asks, is it sexist that Delta Airlines cut out a same-sex love scene as well as the word lesbian when it showed the film Booksmart on its flights. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know whether that was sexist, you can and should start your free two-week trial of Slate Plus by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, on to the show. Katie Hill, she was a new member of Congress. She flipped her L.A. area district from red to blue in the 2018 election, and she resigned last Thursday. Uh, Nicole, tell us what happened. Sure. Representative Katie Hill is a bisexual first-term Democrat congresswoman in California, as you just mentioned. She resigned after accusations surfaced that she'd been having um inappropriate relationships with a campaign staffer who is a woman and a congressional staffer who is a man. She admitted to the relationship with the campaign staffer, but denied the relationship with her legislative director, Graham Kelly. Um, You know, as the situation unfolds and, and more details come to light, it becomes much more complicated. Hill felt compelled to resign after intimate pictures of her, the campaign staffer, and her husband, Kenny Heslop, together were leaked to a conservative pro-Trump website named Red State. Hill and her husband are in the midst of a divorce, and she believes he leaked the images as revenge porn in order to humiliate her. 
To complicate matters further, Hill accuses her husband of being abusive and leaked texts between the campaign staffer Hill and her husband appear to accuse Hill of being abusive to the campaign aide. There's so much here. There's biphobia, intimate partner abuse accusations, revenge porn and workplace misconduct that seems to be uh, creating a, just a stew for the headlines. And um, it's a lot. We should also note that there are these new rules in Congress that it is forbidden to have a relationship with a staffer. And, and the relationship with the campaign staffer is uh, is is not completely outlawed, uh, not by these house rules. But that was kind of the reason that a lot of that she's there's still there's going to be an inquiry. Like it felt that it, maybe it's maybe it's wrong to say that it's the reason, but it's certainly like part of the factor. Like even though she denies that there was a relationship with a staffer, the, a, a relationship that would have been illegal, it feels that kind of that was. To me, that feels like uh, it's a factor, at least. It's not why she resigned, but it's, um, you know, a lot of the commentary has said, oh, she's the first person who's had to resign because of these rules. I don't think that's entirely accurate, but it's kind of a factor in what's going on. Yeah, and with the the relationship that she did admit to and that the photographs concerned, the relationship with the campaign staffer, that's a little complicated, too, Mm -hmm. if we're trying to think about, you know, whether there was an ethical violation there, because their relationship began before that woman was uh, working on Hill's campaign. So it's it's not quite like she began a relationship with her employee. It was she hired someone she was dating. Like, this is a big, gross mess. And I think One of my first thoughts is the way we need to look at um, relationships amongst people who work together, whether, you know, when they're consensual, um, because when we're in the workplace, we're together eight to 10 hours a day or longer. We're spending 40 to 60 hours a week together. It seems kind of impossible to ask people not to grow close to one another and not to form perhaps intimate relationships. But again, this situation is obviously different because of the nature of the relationships between uh, Hill and the campaign aide and, uh, you know, and which brings in the husband and divorce and all this stuff. So... My first reaction to this story is, yikes, there's so much going on here. And one of the things I think we lose sight of in talking about this sometimes is that this situation is, it's the manifestation of the extreme panic of the culture of it'll all come back to get you. And so while I think there is a place for serious accountability and reflection, what does it mean then to um, people who want to run for office, you know, that someone like Nancy Pelosi says, see, this is why you can't do X, Y, and Z. And the problem with this situation, if it was just about the pictures that were released as revenge porn, I think it allows us for um, some conversation about, you know, what does it mean for things that happen in an intimate relationship to be weaponized? But then the workplace misconduct thing is a separate issue, but they're all under the same giant tent. So this is a really hard conversation to have. But all of this makes me think of, um, if you remember a few years ago, there was a young woman who wanted to run for Congress named Crystal Ball. And she later became an MSNBC news correspondent. But part of the reason why she had to drop out of the race were some pictures were released of her doing some silly stuff, I think, at a holiday party. And the way that she kind of became the face of the cautionary tale about securing your future um, as a young person interested in these issues, I think we're not around that corner yet of thinking about the ways that behavior is policed for the future um, and not for the present. And so I think the thing about the photographs is touching on a larger conversation that might get a little bit better, but I don't think we've really kind of squared how we understand um, the fact that a lot of young people do have pictures of themselves in, you know, states of undress. And what can this mean for the future? Yeah, at Slate, we've been having some pretty heated uh, Slack discussions about this, specifically about the 
uh, questions of journalistic ethics and whether it was right for Red State, which not quite sure you could call that a journalistic outlet, but especially because the piece that you know published the nude photos was written by an operative uh, for the guy who Hill ousted from Congress. So there seems to be a conflict of interest there. Probably should have chosen someone else to write that post. But anyway, uh, we've been talking about whether it was in the public interest for these photos to come out. Um, and you know, I did a little straw poll yesterday, so I already know what June thinks about this. But um, I'd say we were pretty evenly split among us at Slate between people who thought that the photos should not have been published at all and people who thought that some of the photos you know, were in the public interest because they were necessary to prove that Hill was having an unethical relationship. I th- Most people drew a distinction between the photos published by Red State, which, you know, showed Hill naked brushing the campaign staffer's hair, and the photos published by the Daily Mail, which were included a lot of nude photos of her that did not add any information to this claim of abuse of power. Um, but, you know, I questioned, like, do we need to see those photos to have evidence of or know that there is an unethical relationship going on? And some people were saying, like, readers don't believe you if you just describe photos. They need to actually see the photos. I'm not sure I believe that. Um, I I don't think that we needed to see the, this revenge porn to understand that she was in a relationship with her campaign staffer. And not knowing anything about Red State's reportorial process, I wonder if – Hill might have admitted to the relationship if she were confronted with the photos and if the photos were described to her and if she was asked point blank about the relationship. Um, I also don't think the photos show abuse. No one has alleged abuse. The text that you referred to, Nicole, the only person who's saying abuse there is Hill's husband, who, you know, she says is abusive and is releasing all this information uh, uh, to try to humiliate her and ruin her career. Um, you know, it it seemed to me reading those texts that he was trying to seed that idea in the campaign staffer's head, like, oh, Katie's abuse, like, what about that, you know? And she was like, you know, talking about, yeah, I feel extremely terrible. She's like isolated me because I was in politics. This was my job. And now, like, I, it hurts me every time I think about her, da, da, da. But no one has said that that there was abuse going on. So I feel like there needs to be a greater threshold of harm to warrant the publication of nude photos. Like, I think that the damage done by publishing these photos was far greater than whatever ethical violation Katie Hill committed by hiring someone she was dating, which, like, I actually do think that probably was worth resigning from Congress. I think Mm -hmm. that is an ethical violation. I don't think that that says anything good about that person's capacity to lead in an ethical manner. Um, But the I I think that whatever sort of um, ethical breach she committed um, pales in comparison to the violation that was committed by showing these nude photos of her. Well, do you guys think she should have resigned? I kind of do. Yeah, I, I, do. I think so. The Like you said, hiring someone that you're already in a relationship, I mean, that's very murky. Um, and to continue the relationship and then what I don't know if it ended and that's part of the mess as well but yeah I think she should have resigned I think she would have been too much of a distraction as people tried to get to the heart of the matter the real like truth of everything my concern is if it had been a congressman whose nude pictures had leaked would you know would we have more care about them being leaked and shared and published in various uh, news sites. And I, I think, yes, I, I, I think um, I th- I'm thinking about um, Anthony Weiner and his pictures that, um, yes, they were leaked, but it was also just kind of swept away very quickly as people delve more into the details of his um affairs and, and all of that. So I, I'm just wondering if, you know, if this had been a man, would we have so much access to his pictures as we do for for Katie Hills? I think you're right. I don't know if male nudity pictures would be shared, but I have a kind of a meta question about nudes that <laughs> exposes a lot. Um, the pictures that were taken were in the context within a relationship. And 
there are a number of people who have um, nude pictures of themselves that are shared in the process of establishing rapport or establishing relationship with someone. If there was no, if this was the only scandal were just the photographs, do you think she would have been able to survive that and keep her position? I think no, because she, I think she's saying that she resigned to make it stop because she was so humiliated and probably didn't want more photos to come out. I, I have seen accounts of, you know, there's hundreds of photos out there that have been sent to Republican operatives, you know, across Congress and and the media. And um, I think she resigned to prevent outlets like the Daily Mail from publishing any more photos. I don't think that the ethical violation of, you know, hiring um, somebody that she was dating was part of it at all, because it wasn't actually against the code of conduct set forth in Congress. I mean, I guess it's possible that she's lying about the alleged relationship with her legislative staffer, and she didn't want that inquiry to continue. But I think she would have resigned anyway, even if it was just the photos, because it's like the, the amount of power granted to the person who released these because outlets were willing to publish them is is far greater than whatever power she has just by staying in office. Right. I think the word extortion was tossed around. But I, again, it's hard to find, you know, the thread to pull to find the, the root of it. Um, but to go back to um, what's going to happen when people who have come up in the age of social media, who have come up in the age of oversharing, start to get into these political, you know, want to run for a political office or even want to get into executive roles and in, in their jobs. What does it mean when these uh, images are their tweets or, you know, their blog posts, if people are still blogging, you know, um, if they come back to haunt them some kind of way, because, you know, they say the Internet is forever. Even if you scrub, even if you delete all of your tweets, they're still I don't know, like the Wayback Machine. There's still ways of trying to find your history. And if someone wants to find dirt on you, I think that they can. So I I think this will start um, part of that wave of concern of, of people wondering, hmm, should I delete my social media? Should I, you know, especially when you have something like, all of the privacy concerns with Facebook and and our information being leaked um, every other day, it seems from our you know the the apps that we use. So I'm I wonder if this is just going to start like uh, people becoming much more concerned about their social media presence and thinking about the future, like what Marsha uh, mentioned earlier. I think in 2040 or 2045, the presidential campaigns just as right now we're just like these are their um, positions on the issues it'll just say there'll be also another category for check out their nudes like it'll just be <laughs> on just the campaign be, website absolutely absolutely terrible. Uh, they will hopefully it's their consensual oh, abso- oh my god absolutely absolutely but it will be just like eh sure check out my nudes I'm just curious like the revenge porn aspect of it are there any consequences for that Yes, because there are at least 41 states, including California and Washington, where it is illegal um, to release, you know, images for the purpose of humiliating someone. And, um, you know, as we're calling it revenge porn. And I think uh, if I understand correctly, um, Katie Hill is seeking legal action against mm-hmm. um, the publications who release the pictures. And I'm I'm not sure if what she's going to do in, in in terms of her relationship with her husband. I mean, that's where the newsworthiness comes in, right? I mean, if they are newsworthy and if we consider these sites meet the media, then it, it becomes a, it becomes a different consideration. Uh, you know, it's newsworthy. Yeah. There's an exception. I'm also super curious about, I mean, you mentioned earlier, Nicole, the biphobia. Like, it, it's, it, we should just take a moment just to pause to sort of talk about this, the... Like it astonishes me that we're now like just talking about a throuple like on in, <laughs> in headlines. Um, that there's a there's a certain mind blowingness uh, part of this to me, which like honestly I felt too. I've been like, oh my god, I can't believe this is in the mainstream now. I mean, clearly it is not cool that it's happening in the context of exploitation and in a very sort of nasty, destructive way. But there's something about this that I feel like this is a very significant moment. This something important has happened right now. Yeah, like maybe if it had been, if there wasn't an ethical violation mm. involved, and it was just a revelation that a congressperson was in a triad that 
that would be okay Mm -hmm. for maybe the first Mm -hmm. time. Um, All right. I think that's all the time we have for this. Listeners, let us know whether you think the photos were newsworthy, should they have been published. Uh, We'd love to hear what you think. You can reach us at thewaves@slate.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, our next topic is Mrs. Fletcher, a new seven-part series on HBO based on a novel by Tom Parada. June, what's the deal? So, as you say, seven-part series, uh... The star of this show is Catherine Hahn, a beloved actress, always in good stuff. Uh, she plays Eve, uh, a mom who, I mean, and it's funny, it, I feel weird. Uh, something erupts within me when I describe a woman as a mom. But it, that, yeah, don't, don't limit her. Uh, it's very important to this TV show because she is single and divorced. And at the beginning of the show, at the beginning of episode, uh, episode one, effectively concerns her packing up her son's stuff and taking him off to college. Uh, when he eventually gets there, uh, she goes home and... It's the kind of prototypical emptiness. She is alone in an empty house uh, and she finds herself looking at porn. And there begins a sort of journey of self-discovery, sort of. And uh, she basically the rest of the show is her trying to figure out what comes next and figure out also what it is that she wants. Uh, She has a lot more time. She has a lot more kind of like it feels like the her world is starting over uh, and she has to figure out what she's going to do with it. And desire is is kind of what the show focuses on. Uh, what is she going to do with her erotic and emotional life? And what do you think of it? I found it dull, unfortunately. I love Catherine Hahn. I am very sorry to be sort of bored by it. Um, it mm. felt that it just didn't really... I don't know. It was all about her. And yet I felt like I didn't really know much about her even after I only watched five of the seven episodes. And I think if we hadn't been talking about it, I would have given up after one because it just wow. it was not grabby to me. Um, and again, there's lots of actors in here that I really like in general and who, you know, were, were perfectly good. I just didn't think that the the story just didn't convince me somehow. I appreciated that, you know, the focus on desire and sex made sense to me because, hey, that's one thing when you when you feel dissatisfied in your life, seeking satisfaction in that area can feel more doable, can feel more achievable. But uh, that's kind of in my head. It, I didn't really get that from the show. It, like, it just felt like it was it was impenetrable in a way that I didn't really want it to be. But I have to all to say, Catherine Hahn was amazing. What did you all think? Okay, so the series is based on a novel by Tom Parada, and all the episodes are directed by women, but that still does not stop the fact that you can tell that this is a man <laughs> writing a woman's mm-hmm. sexual exploration. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because what really turned me off, um, pardon the pun, is the fact that every time Eve's sexual exploration moved away from home, moved away from watching porn, it ends in humiliation or dissatisfaction. And it's like she is punished for her sexual exploration. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. I, I can't deal with this. This is awful. There has to be at some point where she has something good that happens um, when it comes to her trying to figure out what she likes or, you know, I, I, I was just like, ugh. I could predict every major turn. I did predict every major turn that happens <laughs> in the episodes. I was, um, I finished all seven and I'm just like, this is just telegraphed from episode one. And I, I wanted to say I hated it, but I don't hate it. I just hate that we still have to get this vision, this view of a woman's sexuality through a man's eyes. And no matter how many women touch the script or directed the, the episodes, it's just very clear that it's just, uh, it could have been better. Parata was also the showrunner, we should note. So, uh, you know, he has a lot of power in television. Yeah. Although I, 
I did read that he got overruled quite a few times in terms of the turns that the script should take, including some departures from the plot of the book. But but I, I agree with what you said, Nicole. Uh, Marsha, what do you think? I don't really enjoy it as much as I thought I would. Um, there's a parallel storyline that runs in this as Mrs. Fletcher kind of rediscovers herself absent of her child being home. He's away at college. And the show does the kind of lazy, oh, you know, this generation with their political correctness mm-hmm. and their sexual politics stuff that is so boring and inaccurate and unable to actually helpfully think about what does it mean for someone to also kind of discover their sexuality um, in different ways in the context of being away from home and in college as a young adult. And so I, I think that everyone in this is doing the best they can with the material, but I think that it's supposed to be this kind of slow journey into these people's lives, but I think it takes a lot of lazy shortcuts. So it's a really lingering narrative that doesn't really use its time well. And this idea that um, the Catherine Hahn character could be so, just so absent for herself mm-hmm. and for her own mm-hmm. sexuality, I think rings true. But the routes that she uses to kind of get there and the, the fixation on porn, it makes me wonder, has this woman never seen pornography? Has this woman never had an orgasm? Like, I need a little bit more to understand how all of this stuff is new to her mm-hmm. in a way that just seems a little ridiculous. I saw it sort of reframing the midlife crisis narrative as a coming-of-age narrative and in a way that felt slightly new to me. Like, it felt a lot like a coming-of-age movie um, that we would normally watch about teenagers, like someone discovering masturbation, um, somebody, you know, having a slow-motion dance scene to I'll Stop the World and Melt With You and, like, finding transcendence in in that song and in, you know, getting drunk for what seems like the first time based on how she conducts herself. Um, I, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I kept wanting things to happen and nothing kept happening. And then when things did happen, I predicted what would happen like two episodes earlier. And I usually really like Katherine Hahn and I think she does a good job in this, but I found it's her very painful to watch because she's so uncomfortable throughout the entire thing. She's like, you know, very uncomfortable in her own skin. She's awkward in, and sort of swallowing herself in every interaction she has in a way that felt overdone to the point where like nobody a could ever be that uncomfortable with themselves you know no like middle-aged well-adjusted person would be that uncomfortable with themselves in every situation and b it was it just gave me like a low-key sense of anxiety throughout the entire show it also made me wonder whether it was trying to take seriously this idea that women can become more full of desire as they age instead of less or whether it was trying to make fun of it. Like, there were a lot of little gags, like, um, you know, she's masturbating and cookies are in the oven. She's baking cookies for her son, and she has to decide what the timer's going off. Like, is she going to have an orgasm, or is she going to save the cookies from getting burned? Or, like, you know, she practices spanking herself. She's playing both roles in, like, a little S&M scene she's doing with herself. Like, it, it. I appreciate a laugh, but to me, those just felt like they were making fun mm. of her. And I wanted to see more of her being taken seriously and and finding herself. The juxtaposition with the college story, it it made me a little bit sad Mm -hmm. in thinking that maybe some people go directly from like terrible sex with drunk boys who only care about themselves and like have no idea what they're doing to like a, a monogamous relationship with a man who also doesn't quite care about your pleasure and you don't ever get to decide what you actually like until you're in your late 40s and divorced and your son moves away. Mm. Um, Yeah, I want to talk about Brendan, the son. Yes, yes. Because this is also such a signpost for, well, now are straight cis white men bad? Like, is it bad to be, you know? And I'm like... I think he literally says that. Yes, yes. Because, okay, Brendan realizes that it's not enough for him to be this boorish person. Like he, in high school, he was the man just because he made himself the man, you know, but in college, everyone is just kind of like, 
you're not intelligent, you refuse to adapt to the language that we use, you know, things like that. And he's realizing that he's not the God that he thought he was. Um, And like his um, white male mediocrity is just coming out like and and it's and it's nobody wants to deal with it his roommate avoids him uh he has a dalliance with a woman that ends um rather terribly for her and he doesn't he still doesn't understand it you know like he's trying to process what happened and he knows that he's the bad guy but i don't think he understands how or why he's the bad guy in this situation i found it very unlikely that this generic state university would not have a predominant culture of like white male jockhood it 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 felt extremely um like uh wrong to me that this random state college campus was like so queer like 100 percent queer and progressive <laughs> and he was like the only white guy who didn't know not to say you know a slur well, there was like this one scene where he tries to go to the jocks table and they're talking about climate change and so it's like what is he supposed to do now because he can't all he wants to talk about is how to surf the tsunami you know in this situation so i, I don't know brendan who from the you know the first second that you see him, he's a horrible guy. He's repulsive. He's the ultimate and you know entitled young white man. And the thing that never really seemed to be dealt with is the fact you know not that parents are responsible for whether their children are wonderful or awful completely, but if you are the white mother of a white son, it kind of is on you to not make him be an entitled jerk. And so that (laughs) did feel like a huge failure for Eve. And that was never grappled with. It was like she was effectively this wonderful person. uh, And her husband, her ex-husband was a shit, at least to her and mostly to Brandon. And yet, while she is responsible, why why was that never reckoned with? Uh, And that felt like a big, when the show is about, Mrs. Fletcher, why did we why did they never deal with that? I watched all seven episodes and one thing that stood out to me was the very careful ways that the show hid penises, but we saw um Eve's full body naked several times. Um, we see other people naked. We see actual scenes of porn where women are completely naked and we're seeing everything that we need to see in a porn scene. And so it just struck me as very odd and jarring to see the way that the show continued to hide dicks because I'm like (laughs) we're seeing everything else and it's not necessarily oh give me the dick I want to see it you know like it's not like I'm like fiending for it but it's it's not fair it's just like why do we have uh, a show about a woman's sexual exploration and you put her body on display but we don't see the men that she is involved with when they are naked we don't see brandon Um, we see him naked a couple of times but again his stuff is very carefully hidden so i that's another thing that i'm like you know just be fair well and the other thing i mean to, to state the obvious too like i think there's one black person like even in the background of this show so uh interesting location i mean there there's a black character who's somewhat central uh but there are no other black people like even in the background of well shows, chloe in, um yeah oh, chloe's she's black right, um, yeah, so she's so, yeah yeah, yeah okay, so she's yeah. a woman of color um and that is also something that i noticed that there was no um uh, woman of color who you know, enjoyed any kind of sexual pleasure in the in the show. But I, I can't hold it against the show because I don't think anybody achieves sexual pleasure uh, in the show. So except for the white men. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, that's a rousing recommendation from the <laughs> waves. Um, listeners, if you disagreed with us, maybe you loved this show. Um, I think there is two episodes out on HBO right now. Let us know what you think. You can reach us at the waves at slate dot com. Ronan Farrow was one of the reporters who, last October, broke the story of Harvey Weinstein's alleged pattern of sexual assault and harassment. He's published several pieces in The New Yorker about it, and his new book, Catch and Kill, came out last month. The book not only explains how Ronan did his reporting, but it gets into the truly flabbergasting lengths Weinstein went to in order to keep those stories from getting out with help from private investigators, duplicitous lawyers, and a few executives at NBC, where Ronan was working when he started his investigation. We're so happy to have him here with us today to talk about the book, Catch and Kill. Ronan, welcome to The Waves. 
it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Your book, to me, read sort of like a treatment for a psychological thriller. Like, you're being stalked, you're battling a conspiracy, you're putting your notes in a safe deposit box with a letter about what to do in case you disappear. What made you want to focus on that part of the story about, you know, Weinstein's efforts to stop your reporting and NBC's cowardly failures, rather than just sort of expanding on your reporting on Weinstein's alleged abuse? Well, built into the plot that unravels in the book is this struggle that so many of us have as journalists of not wanting to be the story and this odd tension where Harvey Weinstein weaponizes some very personal stuff from my past and kind of makes me the story. And then the shutdown of the story starts commanding all this interest from good, tough journalists who kind of grill me about it. And, you know, there are these scenes where I sit there and dodge questions first because I've, you know, told NBC that I would do my best to dodge questions. I always said I wouldn't lie, but, you know, for a time I'm trying to save my job and wondering if it's really significant enough that I need to be talking about it. And then it's partly the critical mass of sources coming forward talking about these vast systems designed to shut down stories and these cultures of suppression that NBC and AMI and CBS um, and other places I've reported on that convinced me that this was a story as important as any other that I'd reported on. And, you know, that meant making it uh, a personal narrative in part, and that meant making it a book that embraced being a book, and therefore being more narrative in full. At what point did you start sort of keeping track of your own experiences with the intent of making that its own story? You know, I was working as a journalist at the time, so automatically my posture was probably more uh, about keeping meticulous notes and records than, you know, maybe the the average person in those circumstances. Um, But a a lot of it is just having that wealth of material and then only realizing after the fact, uh, oh, every single day here is documented to the nth degree with, you know, recordings and notes and transcripts and Part of the process of writing the book was, you know, not just the the note-taking I took at the time and all of the record-keeping, but also a very exhaustive process of going through and making sort of a Bible of what had happened day by day through essentially a two-year period. Um, And then there's the fact that, you know, that the narrative in the book extends into almost the present day. I mean, the final scenes in the book take place in um, mid-2019. So I was both kind of uh, meticulously uh, assembling all of the material from the recent past and then also uh, living out the end of the plot at the same time. There was this weird situation where, you know, I was getting calls about like movie adaptations and I just kept telling people I, I am still in the plot. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't talk about that. I have to finish several years of crazy intensive reporting first. This book is a chronicle of uh, very intensive reporting, very intense reporting. Uh, and the story also, because you, you put, you know, you, you put yourself in your own story, um, you reveal that the, the level of connections that you had with uh, people like Noah Oppenheim of NBC, who was key to kind of closing down the story. Matt Lauer, you know, you, you were on the Today Show with him. Um, and, you know, what's clear... Uh, and interesting to me uh, was that you are so good on like the systemic problems that we're facing here, that this is an old boys club. Um, You are also, unlike the authors of She Said, you are a guy, a white guy. Um, Did you ever have the feeling that you were, you were being kind of offered entree into that old boys club? Did you ever have the sense that they were kind of tempting you into complicity in their world, nothing to do with the abuse that, that many of these men are accused of. Did you ever kind of deal with that sense of like, please join our club? Yeah, there are many scenes in the book where, uh, you know, men are talking about women in a certain way or talking about the expedience of killing a story in a certain way and these questions of kind of, is it worth it? I mean, for what it's worth, 
some of those characters you mentioned are incredibly frank about their motivations in the book, you know, that they openly say, like, you know, does it really matter? Is it really that bad what Harvey Weinstein is doing? Uh, you know, girls like that say a lot of things. It's, you know, there's some pretty nasty things that get said uh, nakedly and openly, I think partly because they, they assume that I am part of that boys club that you mentioned. And there are moments then where kind of the temperature in the room changes in, in scenes in the book. Uh, when I push back on that and then become something of an outsider and a pariah. And in a funny way, while I can't claim to understand the systemic sexism that gets directed at so many of my sources over the course of this book, I get a kind of halo effect from it where suddenly I'm being called, you know, hysterical and too emotional and too close to things and all of these things that women get called when they speak out about these issues. How has your reporting changed the way you see the intersections of power and performances of masculinity? And have you become more aware of men who have such um, extreme difficulty separating status from their masculinity? You know, sometimes in conversations that I have with men accused of serious crimes of sexual violence, those two things are strikingly entwined, that a person's status uh, leads to a set of misapprehensions or rationalizations after the fact about their actions, Um, whether that is someone who has maybe had uh, life experiences that involved getting uh, rejected by uh, people they were making sexual advances on, and power became a a cudgel to get what they couldn't get by consent, or uh, the reverse case, where someone, by dint of their power and charisma, uh, is used to people saying yes, including people who work for them and people they have complete control over. and I've seen the scenario where someone seems to be convinced that it's impossible that anyone could say no. Um, you know, and both of those extremes lead to a situation where uh, power has kind of corrupted um, and led to this kind of criminal activity. Uh, on the other hand, you know, some of that is people psychologizing themselves after the fact. Uh, it's rationalizing and, you know, no matter how powerful someone is, uh, I think they know when they're engaged in criminal activity. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book is the way that you unmask the deep connections among um, media and entertainment companies. And so at various turns when, you know, Ronan roving reporter goes out to try to report the story, you realize how many people have this um, close relationship with Weinstein or his companies. And so when we think about the way forward, it's not just a story about people being brave enough to talk about their experiences. It's also about how power has just been consolidated in these industries. What do you imagine is possible um, in the wake of the exposure of this type of stories in terms of how these various circles interact with each other? Or do you think we're kind of stuck with these weird relationships among the press and the entertainment industry and the publishing industry? This gets back to the first question in the conversation. You know, one of the reasons why I thought this was a separate important story was because it explains how powerful interests throttle the flow of information in our culture and how that can affect our democracy. You know, one of the threads in this book is me following these clues from Harvey Weinstein's relationship with the National Enquirer to Donald Trump's relationship with the National Enquirer and potential violations of election law that resulted from them burying stories for Trump. Um, You know, this is important stuff. Who controls the news? Who tells our story? um, And at whose behest? And the deep web of alliances between the media and powerful people accused of terrible crimes absolutely has distorted news coverage at some of our greatest news organizations. Um, you know, there's a, there's a straight line through that reporting I've done on the Inquirer, on 
CBS on NBC. Some of those are great news organizations and some not. Um, uh, but they're all media companies that you know, enjoy the protections of the First Amendment, and rightly so. Um, and I think one of the most powerful things we can do is have an honest conversation about how to hold ourselves accountable, especially at our, our great media organizations, um, but even at our tabloid media organizations, how to ensure that uh, people who are supposedly in the business of imparting knowledge aren't instead becoming instruments of suppression. And I, I refuse to think that we are stuck with those circles of uh, mutual protection and suppression of information. I think that the fact that uh, media is becoming more diverse and fragmented is actually a good thing in terms of loosening the vice grip powerful people have held on the media for so long. Um, and I think that the bravery of sources like the women in Catch and Kill and the bravery of the, the reporters I talk about in Catch and Kill, you know, Ken Oletta, Ben Wallace, uh, you know, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, um, that all leaves me with a lot of optimism about our willingness as a culture to continue to confront complicity in the media. Along those lines, you know, you mentioned a couple other reporters who had worked on the story before, and you also mentioned that, you know, it, it took sources willing to talk and willing to come forward um, in order to get the story out there. So I feel like there's, you know, when, when I think about why the story or stories, I guess, came out when they did, um, there are maybe a, a couple reasons why that might be. Part of it is, you know, great reporting by folks like you, and part of it is a willingness on the sources part, what do you think played into the ability of, you know, both of those forces combining to finally get the story out there after so many thwarted attempts by, by previous journalists and, and previous women? Well, I had the luxury of doing my work in a cultural moment where some of these things were being reassessed. Uh, it was still almost impossible for so many of my sources to imagine that they might speak and be heard. But I was able to convey to them that there were some thin precedents beginning to emerge, you know, that the accusers of Bill Cosby had refused to shut up and that that story had bubbled up repeatedly, that Gretchen Carlson and others at Fox News had done what they did um, and blown that scandal wide open. There were a couple of examples I could point to uh, where there was at least some suggestion that the dam might break. And that in turn rests on a whole wider history of feminism and activism and, you know, things I have nothing to do with, um, including Tarana Burke's wonderful work. Uh, you know, she coined the term Me Too and is still so instrumental to mobilizing people. Um, I'm a reporter. I don't have anything to do with movement building or activism, but uh, I certainly was able to work in a climate where activists had created a, more of a space for women to speak their truth on this subject. Um, when women became more vocal about speaking out against sexual harassment, a lot of times their male colleagues would say things like, "Uh oh, I can't tell you you look good today or else I'm going to get fired, you know, to try to cover up their discomfort or, or anything, you know, something like that. And I wonder if your colleagues have changed uh, their behavior when you come around now. Are they are they joking with you like, "Uh oh, I'm not on, next on the list, am I? You know, but it's also kind of like a little is there a little bit of fear um, in those jokes? <laughs> I, I definitely get a lot of those jokes. And, uh, you know, mostly the calls I make, guys, are, are uh, you know, supportive calls, uh, working with sources who are, you know, willingly giving me information. It's a very small subset where I'm kind of adversarially calling to uh, grill someone about serious allegations against them. Uh, but, you know, it cuts both ways. I think the reputation that I've acquired... Um, you know, leads a lot of people to pick up the phone, and that's great. Uh, and hopefully that flows from people having some sense that I'm uh, trustworthy as a journalist. Uh, there are also plenty of people, maybe in the same category you're talking about, who hang up the phone really quickly <laughs> when I call, um, and, you know, who assume it's about something terrible. And I and I've, there's a funny dynamic where I've kind of had to develop a language where if I'm calling a, you know, a prominent man, uh, in my reporting, and they're not accused of something terrible, I have to say very quickly, like, this is not about anything about you. <laughs> I'm just seeking information <laughs> about someone else, um, which is an odd position to be in. 
in this current moment, what is it like for you to then, I don't know, exist in this space of journalism? Because I imagine your persona non grata in a lot of other places. What did this do to you in terms of thinking about your own um, both professional and personal relationships with people who felt like you had exposed their complicity or exposed their bad behavior? Well, I, I try to be very aware of and to check myself about my privilege, you know, at every turn and was always very conscious of the many ways in which I was privileged as I was living through these events from, you know, not being a journalist in, uh, you know, Pakistan or Russia or any of the many places where journalists just wind up dead for doing this kind of work, um, all the way to, you know, just simply being a guy in our culture um, and therefore in some ways being more seen. Um, That said, it it was a scary turn of events. And I'm very frank in the book about the ways in which, uh, you know, I really had to make a decision to see my career go away in the course of telling the story. And that was more difficult for people at a working level, like my producer at NBC, Rich McHugh, um, who's an incredible guy and really emerges as a a portrait of bravery in this book because, you know, he has four little girls to support and, um, you know, is living in the suburbs and dealing with his mortgage and uh, has a lot more on the line than I do as a a young and at the time, you know, single person um, in a wonderful supportive relationship, but, you know, without any dependence. Um, And people putting their careers on the line like he did, that's a a real cost and feels uh, anxiety inducing. And I try to bring people inside my own experience of that, uh, hopefully to teach people something about the wider community of people, whistleblowers, journalists who who go through those kinds of fears. Um, That said, I do try to focus on the positive and I have been incredibly fortunate and in a, a frankly unusual position in that, you know, my career has come back and I'm doing okay. Uh, and yes, I get uh, attacks of various kinds, like legal and even threats to my personal safety. And um, yes, as you say, I'm persona non grata in some circles in the media world um, and have been blacklisted in various places and so forth. And that's all, you know, described in the book and has been confirmed now by other reporters. Uh, but I'm making a living and doing well and um, immensely grateful at all times for how much support I've gotten in the wake of all of this. And and I guess I I try to highlight both of those sides of it because not everyone has that luxury. Not everyone has the kind of public profile and is able to rally the kind of public support around this kind of controversial work. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ronan. Um, We really enjoyed the book and it was great to get to chat with you about it. I'm so grateful for uh, for you guys calling attention to it. And thank you for the work you all do and for the smart conversation. Thank you. Take care, guys. Bye. All right. I want to talk a little bit about our our own takeaways from the book. Um, what did you all get from it? Well, I was surprised at how much of a page turner it was yeah. for me, um, particularly since I don't typically read these kinds of, I don't want to call it a tell-all, but this kind of investigative um nonfiction slash I don't I don't know what else it could be called but I don't typically re- typically read this and I found myself enthralled and I um I really appreciated the way that he was able to balance the facts of what was going on with the need to keep the reader's attention because that can be uh, a very delicate line to walk and um a lot of people will go more towards the sensational side and, you know, make it exploit the um, the situation, exploit the experiences that the victims were having. But I think he did a really good job of making sure that we were aware that this is uh, a, these are real life events that are happening and and that have happened and that we need to um, understand the seriousness of all these different situations. I agree. And I also find it a complete page turner. I was surprised. This is the kind of book I tend to read for like, oh, you know, behind the scenes, like how did he do the reporting kind of thing? And she revealed that, but it also really was just like gripping. Um, I really appreciated the way that he really focused on the systemic aspects. Like, sure, there are some bad guys around, but it's there are so many of them 
and they've been there for so long and they've been covering up for each other. And it really, you know, we can call it an old boys club as I have been doing, but, you know, it's a culture of keeping quiet and and uh and the other thing that was terrifying honestly and something that also came up in all the coverage of the theranos scandal that we've been hearing in the last year year and a half was the sort of deployment of the a very expensive legal help to threaten and to try to silence people either with ndas or just threatening them with legal action and you know involving people who are faking personalities and like just it is terrifying to think to stop a story coming out there's just this entire you know like spy operations happening i mean really like it is a real life spy story in many ways and that's terrifying yeah, the, for me that it it was a little bit surprising and perhaps also telling that for a story that was that's essentially about you know the abuse of women and then the bravery of those women it was a very very male heavy story i mean almost all of the people in it are men you know the people reporting the story the people making decisions about whether or not that reporting gets on air um you know the people editing that work producing that work the people spying the people doing the abusing like it was just a very male story yeah. um which i think helps explain why these stories haven't come out that for so long they were just sort of like poo-pooed as like oh that's a personal matter there were a lot of people um you know up and down the hierarchy at NBC who were like well is that really so bad or also sort of uh, objectifying and commenting on the appearance of some of the survivors of Weinstein's abuse. In our a recent Is It Sexist segment, we talked about um, the way Bob Woodward talked about, um, uh, she said, Megan Tui and Jody Cantor's book about you know Weinstein's abuse and their reporting about it and how he was like, well, isn't it about sex at its very core? And I think this book does a really good job of explaining how sex is actually kind of a small part of it. And it's, you know, if it was just about men wanting sex, there wouldn't, it's not just like men are horny and can't help themselves. Like if it was just about that, there would not be hundreds of millions of dollars and, and, and you know, global spy operations um, harnessed to protect these men. This is uh, this is about throwing power around and maintaining a hierarchy of power that benefits, you know, the men at the top of NBC and all these law firms as much as it does, you know, Weinstein who who gets to who, you know, for decades got to stay in his position of power. I think that the way that the book is written also there's a level of self-awareness that Pharaoh embodies as he's talking about his greater opportunities at NBC. Um that some of the people we meet who are in the position to control not only what types of stories are available to a larger public, but what kind of reporting he can do, you know, there's all these signposts that there's something a little off about these guys. And what I think is really interesting is that the people who are determining whether the Weinstein story should run, if they're not friends with him, they have also engaged in inappropriate workplace behavior as well. And so he's creating a really compelling through line about the ways that people, um, some with great privilege, some with uh, moderate amounts of privilege, how they're trying to prove themselves in a system that has already determined that sexual harassment is not a big deal. And you see his growing awareness of his relationship to this system as the story gets deeper and deeper. And I appreciate that there wasn't this kind of, um, I think sometimes people who write these stories can sometimes um, feign a little bit of innocence of like, I can't believe that, you know, my hero in this organization would do this, but just a real grappling with coming into this awareness and having to hold oneself accountable um, and still trying to make it work in a system that is so um, deeply, deeply toxic. It was also a, a vindicating text for women who've been told they're paranoid for <laughs> thinking that there was like a global conspiracy to keep these kinds of allegations under wraps, like Rose McGowan in particular. Um, and, you know, I, I've been a little bit critical of her book uh, in a piece I wrote for Slate. And, you know, I I don't completely um, agree with the ways that she's gone about, um, you know, uh, activating in this in the Me Too era, if you want to call it that. But, um, 
you know, she she's completely written off as paranoid and crazy mm-hmm. and hysterical. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, a woman has been posing as her best friend when when really, you know, working for the spy operation hired by Weinstein in order to get dirt on her. Like it's I, I don't know if I know I called it vindicating. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it is, but it um, certainly uh, validates a lot of people's suspicions that there are, you know, entire industries full of men and and, and several women um, working to protect these people just because, I don't know, they're, they, they love money that much. Like, it, it, I, I'll, I, we can guess about their motives all you want, but, um, you know, to, to help keep these alleged abusers in power. Yeah. That's all the time we have for Catch and Kill. If you've read the book, we'd love to hear what you think. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. All right, it's time for our recommendations. Who wants to go first? I can. Uh, Thanks, Jim. <laughs> I want to give a rousing recommendation for Mark Morris's memoir, say that six times fast, which is called <laughs> Out Loud. Uh, Mark Morris, of course, the dancer and choreographer. And, you know, dance and especially modern dance, well, actually all dance is a, is kind of the the area of arts and culture that I am that I know least about that I see least uh and yet I find Mark Morris a very interesting person because he's he's kind of loud you know like the like the title says he's he's somebody who is brash and and just kind of out there and I was just curious to hear the story of his life and first of all it's very compellingly written it's written with a co-writer uh but it feels like I don't know him so I don't know if it is his voice but this voice feels like it would be the voice of Mark Morris it's very sassy and sharp and uh you know he doesn't hold his doesn't hold back um and I also just learned a huge amount about both dance and choreography and just like the work that goes into making dances to forming a company and becoming a dancer and all of these things that were hidden to me and uh, now I feel like I have a sense of them and it was just a really fun and interesting book to read so Out Loud by Mark Morris Sounds really good. Marsha, what do you have? I have a podcast again. Um, This one is called That That Don't Kill Me and it is a non-inspirational look about um, illness and disability from two people who had chronic illness um, since they were young. And it really delves into the stories that we often don't hear about anxieties about dating, about going out and you can't drink because of your medical situation. How much do you tell coworkers about your disability or your illness? Um, being a kid in a hospital. And I just think that these conversations are so thoughtful and are really just in the service of honesty and not, again, inspiring people, which I think is really fantastic. And so the podcast is That That Don't Kill Me with Kendall C. Smyer and Jameson Rich. That sounds awesome. Uh, Nicole, what's yours? Uh, okay, so I had one recommendation, and then in watching Mrs. Fletcher, I changed it. Um, so. <laughs> My recommendation is a music band called Duran Jones and the Indications. There was a song that plays um, in a particular moment uh, in the in the series, um, and I just kept I kept rewinding this, the scene just to hear the song. So um, it is a uh, old school soul pop sound kind of group. And when I say old school, I'm saying it's a little Smokey Robinson, some Frankie Lyman, Otis Redding. Um, it's just really, really good. I strongly recommend it. I know there's an album on Spotify, and they're all on social media, where you know wherever you want to find them. Um, and I think that they're a perfect band for when you want something soulful, but with much more care um, with the lyrics and musicianship than what is uh, currently happening in R&B right now. So that is Durand Jones and the Indications. Wow. I'm so glad you got something out of Mrs. Fletcher. <laughs> They did have a very good soundtrack. There was also a queer dance party that, Mm -hmm. for some reason, Brendan got to go to, where they were playing, like, J.D. Sampson and Men and Tegan and Sarah. And I was like, excuse you, (laughs) give me this playlist. Um, All right. I am going to recommend – this is the first time I've ever recommended an action movie to anybody, I think. Um, I'm going to (laughs) recommend Terminator Dark Fate. Ah. It's a Terminator movie. Um, For those of you not familiar with the Terminator series or unfamiliar with this latest uh, entry into the series, um, 
it's apparently it disregards several other Terminators that have come before. <laughs> um, apparently, like, the lead woman character, Sarah Connor, who's played by Linda Hamilton, like, it, it was implied or maybe said that she died at some point. Well, she didn't die. She's back in this movie. Um, she was she started in the first two Terminator movies, um, and this is the first one she's back for. The film also stars Mackenzie Davis, mm. who is a queer icon for her role in San Junipero, the um, acclaimed Black Mirror episode. Um, and also Natalia Reyes is in the movie. She's really great, too. I recently wrote a piece about this because a little birdie had told me that it was an incredibly uh, queer and feminist text. Um, and it definitely is. First of all, there's basically no cis men in it. I'm not counting the two Terminators, one of whom is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, the other of whom is played by another guy. Um, <laughs> uh, but be, I don't consider them cis men because they're robots wearing sort of like masculine presenting skins. Um, so the only real cis men in it are have very small parts and they die. Um, and so it's a very like woman-led movie that's also incredibly queer, even though it's mostly like a very loud dog whistle. Um, there's there's no explicit acknowledgement of a sexual relationship between the two characters who seem like they're together, but they're definitely more than platonic. Um, I actually wrote a piece about it that you can find at Slate.com. We'll link to it on this show's uh, page. It's also like a critique of masculinity a little bit, like Arnold Schwarzenegger's character. Um, like, I'll be back. Perhaps some of you may have heard that famous line from this movie. Um, he He's sort of a reformed uh, character where he is learning to perform emotional labor which is not does not come naturally to either you know the 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 masculine ideal presented in the film series or to a robot um he like has a family a non-sexual relationship with his female partner but they co-parent a child together and are romantically involved um he's like performing housework um he, decorating the home um i I also think it's being marketed to the wrong people because I found it really fun and and kind of sexy and just an enjoyable movie. But it's bombing at the box office mm -hmm. because I think it's the Terminator fans are going to see the movie and are sort of disappointed that there are no cis men in it and that like the heroes are all women and it's super queer and like all these people online are like, oh, the woke Terminator, like F this woke Terminator movie. <laughs> um, but for people who liked watching the Terminator because Linda Hamilton did pull-ups, uh, which my wife says that's what made her gay, <laughs> you're going to love this movie. You should go see it. It's called Terminator Dark Fate. I hope that people new to the Terminator series as I was uh, go to see it because it was great. All right, that's our show for today. Thank you to Sarah Burningham, who produced this episode, Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and Rosemary Belson, who provided production assistance in D.C. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.